Hello, this is Oro Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold. In his encyclical Lumen Fide, Pope Francis wrote, Yet since Christ is risen and draws us beyond death, faith is also a light coming from the future and opening before us vast horizons, which guide us beyond our isolated selves toward the breadth of communion. We come to see that faith does not dwell in shadow and gloom, it's a light for our darkness. Dante in the Divine Comedy, after professing his faith to St. Peter, describes that light as a spark, which then becomes a burning flame, and like a heavenly star within me, glimmers. Today in Oral Valley Catholic, we're going to talk about the theological virtue of faith and what our popes have had to say about it and why it's necessary to have faith as we go through a very stormy time. Be back in a moment. Pope Francis is not the only pope that's written on faith. Pope Benedict XVI, in his great book, Introduction to Christianity, uh, also starts by talking about faith, and it's a wonderful chapter on faith in modern times. As part of his discussion, he talks about a famous French a playwright and poet named Paul Claudel. Not, I think, well known to uh, American audiences, but he had been nominated six times, Claudel, for the uh, Nobel Prize in Literature. He had a very difficult life. He was an ambassador for France, retiring just as the, the Nazis were coming to power, which was probably a good time to get out. And the French were the French were having all their own problems on the eve of the... Second World War. He had a sister, Camille Claudel, who uh, was a famous sculptor even in her own time and an associate and apparently lover of the sculptor uh, Rodin. Claudel had this huge conversion experience uh, at 18 years of age and became a very devout Catholic. He was kind of a right winger in French politics, which put him at odds. Uh, in the very extreme world of French politics with everybody who wasn't on the right wing. Um, and so he was criticized widely, but one of the interesting things about him uh, in everything that kind of came apart in France after the Nazis invaded, Paul Claudel was one of the few voices that consistently stood up for the Jews. He uh, criticized the Nuremberg Laws, which took rights away from Jewish people in Germany. He criticized how the Vichy regime, which was the pro-Nazi regime in southern France run by Marshal Patin, he uh, criticized how they treated Jew Jews. Uh, he had a very tumultuous family life, too. His sister, he had, Camille Claudel, the sculptor, he had committed to an insane asylum, though people still argue whether she was really that nuts, although she was apparently has some real emotional health issues. Well, Pope Benedict refers to one of Claudel's late plays called, in English, The Satin Slipper. The Satin Slipper is a play that is very rarely performed because it takes 11 hours to put on. Now, rest assured that if you want to see it after listening to this podcast, there is apparently a Portuguese movie uh, based on The Satin Slipper where the director uh, cut it down to only seven hours. 
So there's your chance to see the entirety of the satin slipper. But uh, Pope Benedict took some time to talk about how Paul Claudel represented faith in that play because he thought it had images that would speak to everybody, whether or not you saw the play or not. So he says that the play opens with a Jesuit missionary, and this is in the time of the conquistadors, who has a brother uh, named Rodrigue, who's the hero of the satin slipper. His Jesuit missionary brother dies, apparently, at the very beginning. But Rodrigue is the hero of the play, but he's a worldling and an adventurer, according to the Pope, veering uncertainly between God and the world, uh, like most of us. Well, uh, the Jesuit has survived a shipwreck, but the pirates who sunk his ship have tied him to a mast from the sunken ship, and he's now drifting on this piece of wood through the raging waters of the ocean, covered in salt water, choking on it. And then the play opens with his last monologue before he dies. And he says, according to the Holy Father, Lord, I thank thee for bending me down like this. It sometimes happened that I found thy commands laborious and my will at a loss and jibbing at thy dispensation. But now I could not be bound to thee more closely than I am. And however violently my limbs move, they cannot get one inch away from thee. So I really am fastened to the cross. But the cross in which I hang is not fastened to anything else. It drifts on the sea. So the Pope says, fasten to the cross over nothing, the abyss. This is the situation of the modern believer. Because in the world that Pope Benedict is talking about, so many of the communal uh, structures that support lives of faith seem to be, uh, have been taken away. And then just attacks on faith and the rationality of faith uh, in the media and probably in your family. And so to think that you cling or tied to this cross floating on this wild stormy sea, that that's the experience of faith, the image of faith. But you know, it's also the image of faith that St. Paul talks about in his letter to the Hebrews. And I wanna to turn to that now before we return once again to this whole understanding of faith that Pope Benedict is talking about. St. Paul, faith is the realization of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Um, we think of faith in a lot of ways. We think of faith as trust. Uh, we think of faith as a belief in the Nicene Creed, which it is. We think of faith when we come to the Eucharist and uh, understand it, that it's the body and blood of Christ because Jesus said it was. Uh, but this image that Paul presents in his second letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11, is worth walking through because Paul is writing a circular letter to Jewish Christians. There is, in the first century, this struggle between the Gentile and Jewish Christians. And although I think we naturally kind of empathize with the Gentile Christians, which are coming into this very different Jewish world, Let's not forget Jewish Christians uh, whose whole world was turned upside down. Rome, Saxon destroys the temple. Um, the Jewish people are cast out of Jerusalem. 
And so when Paul writes this letter, a circular letter goes from church to church, which means it's different than Paul, say, writing a letter to the Corinthians, where they might take it and pass it on to other churches, as obviously they did. But a circular letter in its intent is meant for more than one church. It, it circulates around. And the key things, ideas that are presented in, in Hebrews is a very high Christology as Jesus' high priest. It's really the place where uh, our understanding that all sacrifice came to its natural end and was fully realized in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross when the night before he was arrested and beaten um, and then crucified, he offered this entire experience of the passion in a sacramental way in the Last Supper. And so it transformed it from just one more routine uh, uh, execution of a little man in history and changed it and revealed him as the God, eternal God um, made present. It's why Jesus always says, um, you know, wait till I'm lifted up. And he's talking about uh, the consecration that he goes through when he's lifted up on the cross. So when Paul is writing about faith in chapter 11, he's going to talk to the Jewish people who have believe in Christ about examples of faith from the Old Testament. And so he's referring back basically to the story of Abraham uh, in, in the book of Genesis. And so in the second reading, and I'm going to read through it piecemeal and talk about each example of faith and what it offers the modern believer, uh, it's Paul speaking to us about the examples of the faith that we're supposed to live. So after Paul says faith is the realization of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen, then he says, quote, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was to go. And he's referring to the very beginning of the Abraham cycle in Genesis when uh, God calls Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees, which is in southern Iraq. They've actually excavated one of the very first cities that ever existed, Ur. And remember, Abraham was called to go up what we think of as the Fertile Crescent, or at least that's what I was taught in Catholic grade school, up the Tigris and Euphrates, uh, way through the north where Syria and Turkey is now, and then down into the Promised Land. So the point is, he was called to go to a place that he had never experienced before, that was inhabited by other people, and he was called that he was going to go and take it with his family. So he had to trust in God's promise about this place that he doesn't know anything about, except what God has told him. It's like us in the kingdom of heaven. And then Paul goes on in Hebrews. By faith he sojourned in the promised land, as in a foreign country. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise, whose architect and maker is God. So think of the images there that are about like modern faith. We're on our way to the promised land, but the place that we live feels like a foreign country. Its values and how the people see things are so different from what God intended as creation. Abraham 
is going through these foreign countries. And St. Paul says, and he's looking forward to the city with foundations. Abraham never founds a city. Jerusalem is the city that St. Paul is talking about. And remember in the New Testament, especially Book of Revelation, it's we're looking forward to the new Jerusalem when the world that we understand is completely transformed in Christ. And so Paul is comparing Abraham going to the promised land with us waiting for this new world. But in between, he, his sons Isaac and his grandson Jacob, who are heirs of the same promise, all dwell in tents. St. Paul in another place will say that our earthly dwelling is like dwelling in a tent, our bodies, that like a tent, it'll be collapsed and it'll be replaced by something greater. And the architect and maker is God. So this is really a dense text with some great riches in Pauline theology. And then here's the third example that St. Paul gives. By faith, Abraham received power to generate, even though he was past the normal age. And Sarah herself was sterile, for he thought that the one who had made the promise was trustworthy. So it was that there came forth from one man, himself good as dead, because Abraham was like over 100 years old, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. And so it's about evangelization. How do you create a new people? Abraham and Sarah trusted that God would give them a son, and Isaac was given them, even when by natural powers they were incapable of generating this. Well, think about passing on the faith to your own children or the people you know about, the people that you would love to be with you in heaven. You'd love to be in heaven, so would I. But it's not just by our natural powers, which are inadequate to give us this promise in the future, just like Abraham and Sarah's natural powers could not give a child. It required some supernatural inner intervention. And so it is with our evangelization. We can blame ourselves, especially parents, for not doing enough, or I'm not good enough for this, or all the ways we tear ourselves down. But uh, to pray to God for the conversion of peoples uh, is to ask for something that perhaps we on our own power just can't do. Um, and so he gives a fourth example they had been thinking of the land from which they had come they wouldn't have they would have had an opportunity to return but now they desire a better homeland a heavenly one therefore god is not shamed to be called their god for he has prepared a city for them and who's he talking about he's talking about all those who died in the faith of abraham isaac and jacob and so it's the people of israel taken into uh, captivity in, in uh, Egypt. It's Moses and Joshua. All of these people are heirs to the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just like we are heirs to that very same faith, which is coming to its fruition over time, and that there is a city, a new Jerusalem, that's being prepared for us. Paul talks about it. The book of Revelation talks about it. Then here's the fifth example that Paul gives. And this again is from Genesis and about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. Remember, this is Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham is called to sacrifice his son Isaac. Then at the last minute, God prevents Abraham from sacrificing Isaac and substitutes 
a victim, which is a ram, which uh, Isaac, uh, which Abraham then sacrifices. But this is the story in Genesis 22 that St. Paul's referring to. Listen to how he talks about it. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was ready to offer his only son, like God the Father will offer his own son Jesus for us. Of whom it was said, through Isaac, descendants shall bear your name. This is the promise made to Abraham. Then he reasoned, Abraham reasoned, that God was able to raise even from the dead. And he received Isaac back as a symbol. What's St. Paul talking about? Well, St. Paul in another place talks about a line in Genesis 22 when Abraham is leading the, the donkey with the wood and Isaac's walking with him and they have a serpent, serpent, servant. And just before they go up Mount Moriah, where the temple in Jerusalem will later be built, Abraham turns to his servant. And this is the thing. Listen to this from Genesis 22 and why the gospel's told the way it is. Abraham turns to his servant on the third day after he caught sight of the place from a distance. Then Abraham said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go on over there. We will worship and then come back to you. Well, Abraham knows he's going to go up to sacrifice his son Isaac. He has so much trust in God that God will uh, make his plan real, that he knows Isaac will, will come back, raised from the dead on the third day. This is what Paul's talking about in Genesis 22. So all of these examples of faith, having to trust in promises that you can't, you know, there's not a guarantee except the truthfulness of God. It's not something you can prove by math. It's not something philosophy can do. It falls short of it. Theology just helps you to understand the promise. It doesn't necessarily prove it. You have to live faith in a way that's completely formed by who you know you are in God's eyes. And that becomes the evidence because the experience of living the faith will transform your lives. And then you look at the rest of the way that people live and you say, I want no part of this. So there are multiple translations of this powerful and very important passage from the letter of Hebrews. Here's one from the King James Version that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This is the RSV version. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Here's from the New American Bible, the realization of what is hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Substance, assurance, realization, evidence, conviction. Uh, these are the way that you look at the words hypostasis and elenkos, elenkos, I think is how you would say it, the two Hebrew word, the two Greek words that St. Paul uses. So eschatology is about things hoped for, what is coming. Anagogy is about heavenly realities. So faith is living in the present, these heavenly realities. And if you want to know how Abraham did it, he did it through obedience to God's words. He was patient with God fulfilling his promises. He was hopeful with the promises that God was giving him about this new city. He believed along with his wife, Sarah. And even in death, when Abraham died, he trusted that God would fulfill his promises, especially as Isaac was to be offered up. 
So while faith, obedience, and patience, and hope in a stormy time. Now let's go back and talk a little bit about uh, Pope Benedict's uh, discussion on faith and introduction to Christianity. So you remember that Pope Benedict talked about the French playwright Paul Claudel and the play, the 11-hour play, The Satin Slipper, uh, which, he, which he wrote. It's only been performed a, half, a handful of times, apparently, according to the Wikipedia article I looked up. But Benedict uh, thought that that understanding of faith being like lashed to a cross floating on chaos, this, he thought, was the great image of faith. But you know who he talked about, which is what touched me, about an image for us to think about in faith, was he uh, talked about St. Therese of Lisieux, and, and if you listen to this podcast, you know that I just love her because I just think she's so uh, powerful. And he says that St. Therese, uh, to some people, looks so naive and unproblematical. She grew up in this very Catholic French house. Her mom and dad have been, I think, canonized. Uh, it's just this very admirable French-Norman family of faith. Um, and it's also a family that shows all the strengths of faith, the way they loved each other, but also the weaknesses of it. You know, the idea is when you try to twist people around and make them fit into your understandings of what they should be. So this is, this is the big story, and then I'll read what the Pope wrote. When Therese was dying, she struggled with atheism. She talked about it openly because uh, she suffered so much. She, she claimed to have been tempted by suicide. She said, I know why they don't keep drugs close to the bedside of a dying person uh, because you'd be tempted to just take it all. And as you know, that's a very real modern temptation. But uh, Therese's uh, death and suffering was so edifying, um, but just apparently so difficult that her sisters hid the fact that she had talked about atheism, wondering if God loved her. You know, it's that relationship in her dying of uh, the relationship between faith and doubt. I do talk to people who are concerned when sometimes they doubt the goodness of God or whether the promises of Christ are true or whether or not you should just do what the American culture says, which is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I like to think that Catholics eat, drink, and are merry, but it's all against the background of the promises of Christ and that we know that there's much more depth in life and in suffering um, than uh, the, a simple philosophy that high grades life only looking for pleasure. Uh, it, it will just leave you so alone, frustrated, and shriveled as a human being. And so our Pope uh, Emeritus, I should say that, Pope Benedict, uh, the Pope Emeritus, uh, wrote about Saint Therese and, uh, and this supposedly simple woman. And here's what he wrote. Quote, in other words, in what is apparently a flawlessly interlocking world, someone here suddenly catches a glimpse of the abyss lurking. So Therese grew up in this wonderfully supportive, faith-filled family. She loved her mom and her dad. 
And even though she had tremendous losses in her early life, she had this world that seemed to make so much sense of things. Then the Pope goes on. Even for her, under the firm structure of the supporting conventions, that is, this faith-filled family, in a situation like this, that's her death, what is in question is not the sort of thing that one perhaps quarrels about otherwise. So Therese was not concerned, according to Pope Benedict Emeritus, about the dogma of the assumption, the proper use of the confessional, or whether Pope Francis was doing the right thing when he goes off this way or that on, on some off-the-cuff remark. Uh, this is not important, uh, the Holy Father says. Here's what Pope Benedict Emeritus says. All this becomes absolutely secondary. What's at stake fundamentally is the whole structure. It is a question of all or nothing. That is the only remaining alternative. Nowhere does there seem anything to cling to in this sudden fall. Whenever one looks, wherever one looks, only the bottomless abyss of nothingness can be seen. So all these fights in the church, they're really secondary, according to the Pope, that the real fundamental issue is whether our faith is fundamentally sound in Christ and his promises. That being the case, if you, like me, believe that, then... Um, when you look at all of these storms in the church and in the world, uh, they have their place. But as our, as the great Pope Benedict Emeritus said, they're absolutely secondary to what is fundamentally the revelation of Christ in the resurrection. Um, requires obedience, requires patience. Uh, we are aliens in a strange land. You know, Pope Francis um, wrote... Uh, when I opened up, uh, he was writing about Dante and faith in Lumen Fide. And he said, faith was like this light burning in the, in the human breast. And he's really referring to Canto 24, where um, in the Paradiso, where Beatrice, who means blessed, is leading Dante towards where God dwells. And who do they encounter? Well, St. Peter. And St. Peter is the guy that meets you at the gate. And what's he do? He asks Dante about his faith and what his faith is. And so what Dante says um, is, here's St. Peter, and I'll just read you kind of my edited version of it. But you can read Canto 24 for yourself from the Paradiso. Well worth it. St. Peter says, Speak up, good Christian, and declare yourself. Faith, what is faith? at which I raised my eyes to look upon the light that breathed these words. And I went on, as the voracious pen father of your dear brother, St. Paul, who with you set Rome upon the, faith of, the path of truth faith, wrote, faith is the substance of those hoped for things, an argument for things we have not seen. And this I take to be its quiddity. The deep mysteries of heaven that generously reveal themselves to me are so concealed from man's eyes down on earth that they exist there only in brief on such a base as high hope built. It is substant by its own nature, one could say. And since from this belief we must construct logical proofs for what we cannot, what cannot be seen by nature, this partakes of argument. And so what he's saying is since our five senses 
sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch. Can't touch this world's to come. What we have is the world of the mind built on uh, the promises of Christ, theology. So St. Peter approves this because he's quoting, of course, uh, to St. Paul. And then the mystery is this mystery that keeps hope alive in your life, that gives a light to understand that the world, what the world is, because the world looks so much different if you believe in Christ than if you're an atheist or the growing American religion. I believe in something. Uh, it may be something different in 10 years, but I believe in something. That is not a saving faith. A saving faith um, is a faith that is real realization of what's hoped for and evidence of things not seen. It's the light from beyond human uh, understanding. Um, and like Pope Benedict says, uh, going back to Paul Claudel, it is like being lashed to a mast, floating on a stormy sea. Um, and maybe when we come up to our death, something we're all preparing for, surrounded by the support, um, given the help that we need, we'll endure in faith to the end. And that'll be evidence for others of uh, where our hopes really lie. This has been Oral Valley Catholic. This has been Father John Arnold. Give me a like and I'll see you next time. Bye now.